Don't let a DUI charge ruin your life. Get a professional and confidential evaluation from our experienced team at True Heights Treatment. Our evaluations are accepted by the majority of courts in the state of Illinois and provide a comprehensive assessment of your substance use patterns and potential treatment needs. Get the help you need today and start your path to a brighter future. Contact us now to schedule your evaluation at 708-248-7039 or at thtdui.com. The George Brassy Podcast is made possible with funding provided from Brassy Global Strategies, LLC, a leading political consulting, public policy, government affairs, and research firm. Are you interested in running for elected office? Need advice? Call or email George, 708-769-5015. Brassy Global Strategies 1 at gmail.com. Chicago Heights City Council continues to clean house. The Chicago Heights City Council continued its early spring cleaning binge by updating city ordinances governing the bidding process, tobacco sales and business licenses, and taking care of four abandoned buildings in the city. Ordinance Changes City Attorney T.J. Summer said the ordinance regulating purchase procedures was updated for transparency to make clearer what items did not need to be put out to bid, such as intergovernmental agreements. The updates include increasing the amount of some non-bid items to $50,000 from $20,000. The city code regulating tobacco sales licenses was amended to cap the number at 28, where it stands now. Summers said the update would allow the city to lower the cap when a license is not renewed. Given the nature of tobacco and its known ill effects on health, limiting tobacco sales in the city is a good move. The City Council then voted to amend the City Code regulating the issuance of business licenses. Summer said the update would help businesses that were not allowed to renew their licenses because of back taxes or other fees. Vehicle Leasing The City Council then approved agreements with Enterprise Fleet Management for Enterprise to manage the city's vehicle leasing, sale and maintenance programs. An enterprise representative told the city council that fleet leasing offers cost savings by using the vehicles for a shorter time, which means a higher resale value. By lowering the service cycle from 11 years to 4 years, the city would save in a few ways, such as getting better gas mileage with newer, more fuel-efficient vehicles, and it would receive a higher resale value because the vehicles are newer and in better shape. The city's fleet is aged, and the used car market is up, Enterprise explained, so it makes sense to capitalize on the strong resale market and use that revenue to lease newer, safer vehicles with better gas mileage. Enterprise added that better safety features, such as backup cameras and better airbags, help prevent collisions and injuries, another cost savings. Mayor David Gonzalez told the council that the city now pays $224,000 a year to lease police and a few other vehicles. Switching to a plan that upgrades vehicles every four years would mean a 10-year savings of $328,000 because vehicles will be newer, with newer safety features and better gas mileage, bringing maintenance and fuel costs down. Once fully implemented, the city will pay another $30,000 per year, but in five years, savings will start to accrue. 
Real Estate Matters The City Council then took care of some real estate matters, approving an application for a Cook County Class 8 property tax classification for the commercial property at 844 Halstead Street. Jack Hines, the city's economic development consultant, said that the buyer paid off $300,000 in back taxes to buy the property. He said the developer owns a number of gas stations in the city and plans to redo the landscape and open a grocery store on the property. The developer has good security systems in place for its properties in the city, including a mobile security team that can respond to problems. The council then approved a resolution authorizing a deed in lieu of foreclosure agreement for acquisition of the commercial properties at 1107 Halstead Street, site of the former El Tunnel Nightclub, 1010 West End Avenue, site of the former Wells Mechanical, and 525 Dixie Highway. Summer said there are no plans for the properties at this time, except to get the deeds and go from there. Police and Fire Commissioners in other business, an ordinance governing the Board of Fire and Police Commissioners was amended to increase the pay of Board of Fire and Police Commissioners pay from $1,000 to $5,000 per year. And Tom Kennedy was appointed to fill a vacancy on the city's Fire and Police Commissioners Board. I'm Chuck. Hello. Hey, Chuck. I'm so glad to have you on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for your patience and thanks for working with me. No problem. I'm, I'm surprised. I know you're fellow podcaster and um i was surprised you don't use anchor but you sound great thanks uh appreciate that no i i've never even heard of it so oh. um but we're good it, yeah it might be worth checking out it's really it's a really easy tool and this is not a plug for anchor.fm yeah yeah no it's good we use a uh, zencaster really and um that works pretty well too great yeah well i'm so glad to welcome uh author chuck marone the podcast. Chuck is the author of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution. Chuck, tell the audience a little bit about the story behind the story. What led you to writing this book? Oh, wow. Well, I, I actually started a blog back in 2008 trying to uh, really understand for myself, you know, writing is kind of a a, a, pro a process of discovery. So trying to understand myself, why our cities were going broke. I do engineering and planning and I've worked for cities for many years. And despite all the investments we were making in infrastructure and economic development and job creation, uh, the cities that I was working with were falling further and further behind, as were, you know, other cities that I could observe. And so I, I started this blog to try to answer that question, why? And the, the book is, you know, comes after a decade of writing two, three times a week, every week, you know, all year, uh, dealing with and answering that question. And I, I, I tried to take the reader on essentially a quicker journey than the very uh, tortuous, long, uh, you know, process of discovery that I went through. Chuck, what when you say you're an engineer, tell the audience a little bit about what that means in your context. Yeah, well, I, I have a civil engineering degree. Civil engineering uh, are the the types you know we like to say we're the oldest engineer. It goes back to you know the some of the stuff we did goes back to Roman times. You know how to build roads, how to build bridges, how to build uh, you know uh, waterworks and uh, drainage systems and that kind of thing. So my background, my engineering work was working for cities. I, I did a little bit of interning with the 
Department of Transportation when I was an undergrad. Uh, but then when I graduated, I, I started working for a, a consulting firm and we did municipal projects. So I worked on uh, new developments, building the streets and, and designing those, uh, the, the pipes under the ground. I got to work on an airport project once. Um, so that, that kind of stuff, that's what engineers do. And that's where my passion is. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the Biden administration right now is proposing this $4 trillion, something in that range infrastructure bill. And that's, that's the kind of stuff where engineers, you know, that, 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 that money, a lot of that money is going to be directed by our nation's civil engineers uh, determining where that should go and how it should be spent and what are good projects and how we deploy that capital. Chuck, with, you mentioned the infrastructure plan. Do you think, from what you've seen so far, that the Biden administration will be friendlier to people who are not in cars? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is a, a thrust of, I mean, certainly the rhetoric around it is that. And I think certainly, you know, um, a lot of the emphasis on spending is that. I think the thing that I question and the thing that I struggle with is whether this is really a problem that is going to be solved by money. Um, you know, you have a system set up and that system does roads really well. It does, you know, walking infrastructure less well. Um, it, it, it tends to do it as an appendage to uh, an auto-based system. And so if you push more money into that system without reforming it, without changing the priorities, without changing the approval processes and, and how you would you know, evaluate a project one against another. Are you going to get a result that is really you know, human-friendly cities and, and human-friendly places? Well, we would call it strong town sense, you know, productive, productive cities. Or are you going to get a lot more auto infrastructure with, you know, some blinged out appendages for people who walk kind of attached to it. And, and I think that is yet to be determined. But, you know, either way, there will be an advancement for people who walk. I mean, that is kind of an emphasis, a core emphasis of, of this administration's transportation rhetoric, at the very least, and seems to be their, you know, their funding priorities. Chuck, I'm on the city council where I live, and we are a very auto-dominated city. Talk a little bit about what type of economic impacts kind of an auto-dominated city has for the residents. Yeah. Well, welcome to America, right? I mean, you're, you're, I, you, you just gave a description of your city that makes it so I can't really identify which one it is. Because, <laughs> I mean, this well, is all of us, right? Um, you know, we're all our, in this. In, in our specific context, our moniker is actually called the Crossroads of the Nation. Um, yeah. Lincoln Highway, Dixie Highway, which are two of the original transcontinental highways, intersect right in the middle of our town. So it's it's been an auto-dominated place for almost ever. But um, talk a little bit about, broadly speaking, yeah. the, the differences there. Well, I, you know, you and I could talk for hours and hours about the many implications of this. If if I were going to simplify it down to like a couple tweets. When you take a, a city and we think of cities like pre-Great Depression as being these kind of compact places where everybody walked everywhere, you would get there by train or by boat or, or you know, eventually by car. But even when you got there by car, you would 
you would get out and you would tend to walk everywhere. The idea that on a normal day, you know, walking a mile, walking two miles, walking three or four miles was, was not something that was out of the ordinary. You take a city like that and you essentially keep, you know, the, 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 the same buildings, the same people, the same everything, but you just spread it out over this huge area. If we look at my city, uh, back at the end of World War II, it was a little under 14,000 people. Today, it's a little under 14,000 people, but it's 10 times the area. So you take that and you, you spread you spread that kind of, you can think of it as energy of a place. You, 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 you spread those buildings out. You spread all that out over this huge area. What you end up with, just from a municipal budget standpoint, is a slightly greater tax base. Uh, I won't deny that you know, doing this uh, gave us more buildings and more transactions and more stuff in a sense, but you wind up with an enormous amount of liabilities. Now, now you have 10 times the road. Now you have 10 times the pipe. Now you have 10 times uh, the infrastructure, the, the area that you need to drain, you know, and, and handle the water run. You, you have all these things like exponentially magnified. And so from the city's balance sheet, uh, what ends up happening is in the very short term when this stuff is brand new, you get a lot of growth, you get a lot of new tax base, you get a lot of new revenue, you start to feel kind of very rich. But then when all of that maintenance comes to, when you actually have to go out and and fix that road and fix that pipe and, and, and repair things, uh, what you find is that you don't have anywhere near the wealth or the capacity to do it. And it's really a function of return on investment. You know, we, we talk about sometimes the, the private to public investment ratio, which sounds like a really complicated math problem, but it's not, it, you know, how much private wealth do you have and what amount of public investment can that support? If we go back to pre-depression cities, it was about a 30 to one, 40 to one ratio we would see in places. Today we see cities where it's one-to-one or, or, or even lower than that, where it takes a, a dollar of public investment to support a dollar a private investment. And, you know, if you think about having to tax that private investment in order to pay to sustain the public portion of it, you know, I mean, we have to tax ourselves to, to fix our streets. That's just kind of, the, you know, the nature of the way a city is. If you're at ratios of one to one, that's impossible. You know, if you're at ratios of 10 to one or, or even 20 to one, it's difficult. And so, you know, we have grown our cities very aggressively and we've experienced a lot of transactions and the type of prosperity that comes from transactions along with that. But we have accumulated massive levels of liability and, and those are really starting to bite now in a way that, you know, can't, can't be ignored and, and has created kind of a, a cascading level of, uh, of not just failure, but also, um, you know, tension and uh, I, I, I think distress. One of the things I found interesting in your work um, is how you view the built environment of a place. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of a strode? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, when I first came up with this term, I capitalized it because uh, engineers love acronyms. And I thought if I write this in all caps, they will look it up and then they will learn something. So if we look at a street, uh, a street is different than a road. And, and let me draw two distinctions. A street is a, a platform for building wealth is what, what we call it here. 
a city is made up of streets that you basically have streets so that you can have houses and buildings and, and, and things that create a place. A street is like a, a framework for your place. A road is different than a street in that a road is a connection between places. If you think of a railroad, it's a road on rails. You, you get on at one spot and you get off at another spot. That's a, that's a road. When we build streets, we can create a lot of wealth with a, a modest amount of investment. When we build roads, we can create a lot of prosperity because we can move people at distance uh, and, and do it in a very cost-effective way. But when we combine the two together, we get this thing that at Strong Towns we call a strode. It's a street road hybrid. We describe this as the futon of, of transportation. If you, if you think of a futon as being an uncomfortable couch that makes into an uncomfortable bed, the strode is a piece of transportation infrastructure that both tries to create wealth and place and, and economic development and jobs while also trying to move people very, very quickly. Um, most of America today is built, at, you know, transportation that are non-highways and non-interstates are built as strodes. And in a strode, you have an environment where uh, even though it's designed with very wide streets and forgiving shoulders and all the kind of engineering attachments that, that make people able to drive fast, we also have added the big box stores, the residential developments, the franchise drive-through restaurants, the strip malls, all, all that stuff that forces you to slow down because of all the intersections and all the traffic signals and everything else. And so you wind up with kind of the worst of both worlds. You wind up with a really, really expensive piece of infrastructure that is also really dangerous to be in because you combine high speeds with turning movements becomes very dangerous very quickly. You have that and you also have the least productive development pattern. You have a, a development pattern that everything is all spread out, really, really high cost, low value per acre or low levels of financial productivity. And you wind up with kind of the worst type of environments. That That is what a strode is. It's the lowest returning transportation investment we can make. And they are very popular in our country. Yeah. Is that, is that because of the transactional nature in your opinion? I, I think that's at the core of it. Yeah. I, I It's interesting because I, I think if we, when, when we as a country step back and do the math on these developments, it's not a hard equation to figure out this this short term versus long term trade off. But when you look at our macro economy, and I've been particularly frustrated recently with economists, you know, around this infrastructure bill at the federal level, uh, there are all these economists out there saying, you know, with interest rates so low, this is a free lunch. You know, we can go out and build as much infrastructure as we want, and and we get a free lunch out of it. We get all this growth in GDP. And, you know, it's not costing us anything because interest rates are so low. And that's a, a ludicrous statement um, because, yes, if your interest is in next quarter's GDP, spending on infrastructure today is fantastic. You know, it, it, it gives you this huge multiplier boost. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, you, you will get new big box stores and you will get new residential subdivisions and you will get you know, new franchise restaurants uh, after you do this stuff. I mean, it, it it really gooses GDP really well. If you are a local government, or let me just say this more, you know, I think personally, if you are a community of taxpayers and citizens invested in a place, physically invested in your home, 
uh, emotionally and well-being invested in, in the future prosperity of this community, every one of those transactions brings with it a modest amount of short-term gain with a comparatively enormous amount of long-term liability. And you are getting poorer every time we do it. That, that doesn't show up in, you know, the CBO accounting of the, the, the federal government's, you know, the, the Biden administration's proposal. It didn't show up in the, uh, you know, in, in the Trump administration or the Obama administration or the George W. Bush administration's proposal. So this is not like a partisan thing. This is a completely, you know, different levels of government have different ways of accounting. Uh, but yeah, you know, we've created an economy that can goose GDP really well by throwing a bunch of money on infrastructure. The side effect is we make our families, our small businesses, and our local communities uh, struggle long-term. Chuck, where I live, I'm, I'm a big proponent of improved conditions for people on bikes, including and up to protected bike lanes. Do you feel that protected bike lanes improve um, cities? It, it's a it's a it's a broad statement and i i have trouble with broad statements so let me <laughs> i i think in a broad sense the answer is yes but i i think there's actually a more important insight there because i have seen engineers build protected bike lanes in places that are absurd um and i've seen places where we need them desperately where they refuse to you know put them in because they don't meet the manual uniform traffic control devices or whatever other, you know, obscure, uh, you know, uh, theological document they're referring to. I, I, I think the, the, to me, the important insight is this. When we look at cities today, the highest returning investments that we can make uh, are the ones that get people out of their automobile and make it easy for them to get around by walking and by biking. Uh, of those two, Biking is the one that is most compatible with a, a city in transition. And, and by that, I mean, you described your place as one that's very auto-centric. And to me, that would mean very spread out. Uh, yes. If you want to build a city that is walkable, um, that is a great thing to aspire to. When we see places where people are outside of their automobile walking around, we can do the math on those places. And what we find is that financially, those are those are places that are strong, viable, attracting investment. They're, they're, they're hitting on all cylinders. But if you can't build that energy in a place quite right away, you know, because your place is so spread out and the idea of people walking is just, it's, it's too much of a burden. If you can transition with getting people out biking, uh, what that is, is, is like a force multiplier for people walking. Uh, a, a, a nice walking area is one to one and a half miles. If you can make a neighborhood that's, you know, a three mile uh, diameter, one and a half mile radius, and you can get your daily needs in that area and, and you can, um, you know, uh, find work, find jobs, find someone to fall in love with, all that stuff in that area, you are building a place that is going to be really successful financially, like very stable. Um, when you switch over to a bike, you can start to expand that radius from one and a half miles to like three miles or four miles. And so all of a sudden now, if you're focusing on bike infrastructure, you can take an existing city that is very spread out 
and start to make it so you can create uh, lots of investment opportunities that just aren't available in a community based solely on automobiles. And, and, and let's be clear, when you have to store an automobile, when you have to have a parking lot appendage to every building, and that parking lot has to be huge. And if you look at a lot of oriented, auto-oriented cities, the parking lots are often larger than, sometimes even doubles the size of the actual building itself. Um, that is a huge uh, financial like millstone around the community's neck because those places are all going to have infrastructure. They're all going to have these very expensive public investments and they will produce very little tax base. As soon as you can get people biking, uh, you don't, you know, not only do you not need that much parking, you don't need that much parking now, but you really don't need it then. Uh, you, but you can start to create kind of a momentum around converting a lot of that stuff into things that are going to be more productive and more high, you know, higher yielding for you. And financially, it's kind of the gateway to building places that are truly more walkable and financially a lot more successful. With the, can you talk a little bit about the walkability score and its relationship to property value? Well, this, this is research that others have done. And I think it's, it is, to me, the, the, the interesting answer is why more than what. Um, but the what is pretty easy. Walkability is a, a measurement uh, of, you know, how much walking infrastructure there is in your neighborhood, how many places you can reach uh, by a, a decent walk, uh, how safe that walk is. Um, th there's a number of criteria that is used to create walk score. But generally, if you go to a place with a high walk score, what you find is that it, it's pretty easy to get around and pretty comfortable to get around. And that walk is, is not just easy and comfortable, but it's actually useful. Like you can get to things that matter. When you take a map of walk score and you overlay it with a map of uh, property values, or in the case of the, the things that I've seen, like a group out of Urban 3 in, uh, in Asheville do, financial productivity, which is, is highly correlated to return on investment. So where are the places where you're making money as a community instead of losing money? The, the correlation with walk score is, you know, 99%. I mean, it's, it, the, the places with really high walk scores are really financially productive. They, they, those are the places where you're doing really well. The places with low walk scores, uh, you know, a, a, as soon as you start to, to drop down, uh, the, the cost goes way up. And the return, the financial productivity goes way down and you start to lose money really quickly. Um, if you can get walk scores, you know, above like 70, 80, uh, it's on a one to a hundred scale. Um, you're doing really well. I mean, financially, even neighborhoods that we look at and say, this is a poor neighborhood or this is a disadvantaged neighborhood. Um, when they have high walk scores, their financial productivity is really high. Um, you can take really wealthy neighborhoods you're like, wow, this is where the, all the affluent people live. And, you know, when they have low walk scores, it tends to correlate really well with financial productivity. You're like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of wealthy people who live here, but they're being subsidized by the rest of the community. Th these are actually money losing investments for us. Chuck, what are two books that you would recommend to the audience that have been influential to you as a person and why? Um, that's a great question. I, I've I've read everything that Nassim Taleb has written, 
And I actually think Nassim Taleb, he, he, he's probably best known for the Black Swan. Uh, but before that, he wrote a book called Fool by Randomness, and he's followed it up with uh, Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game. And it, he's really kind of a modern philosopher. And his, his, his insights are really that we as humans are very poor at uh, estimating risk. But history and nature and ecosystems, uh, all of these things are, are much better determinants of, of risk and reward than anything that we will do with a, a calculator or a spreadsheet or hubris today. And I, he, he taught me um, the mechanics of humility, basically, I think would be the way to, the way to, uh, the way to state it. Um, you know, so I, I would recommend anything by, by Nassim Taleb. I, I think he's just, uh, you know, the, probably had the greatest influence on me. Great. Well, Chuck, uh, it's an honor again to have you on. I've listened to your podcast myself. I've read your book. I've given your book to plenty of my colleagues on the city council. And thanks again. If you're ever in Illinois, come look look us up in Chicagoites. And hopefully by then we'll be a more walkable and bikeable city. George, I would love that. And just a, a final word. Thanks for thanks for what you do. Being, being on city council is a thankless, difficult job. And uh, I really have... You know, I, we are, we're very critical sometimes of decisions cities make, but I'm never critical of people because it's a hard job. There's a lot of compromise. There's a lot of, a lot of difficulty that goes into it. And just thanks for, thanks for doing that work. It's very important. Chuck, if somebody wanted to look you up and find you on the internet or work with you, how would they get a hold of you? Man, strongtowns.org is our website. Uh, you can get connected to, you know, all of the articles we write, the podcasts we do, the videos we produce. Uh, the academy courses we've created, created a whole series of courses for people that they can take. Um, and then any events we do are all listed there too. So it's a, a wealth of information. We're also on every social media platform you're going to find yourselves on, except for TikTok. My kids keep telling me we need to do that. And I don't know, may, maybe someday. <laughs> you're in good company because I'm not on there either. So, <laughs> thank you. Take care. Hey, thanks, George. Take care. Help George stay on the Chicago Heights City Council. Go and donate today at tinyurl.com slash aldermangeorge2023. Begin to transform your life and work towards inner peace with expert psychotherapy. At True Heights Treatment, our experienced therapists provide personalized, compassionate care to help you overcome life's challenges and reach your goals. Whether you're struggling with depression, anxiety, relationship issues, or other mental health concerns, our team is here to support you. With a warm and welcoming in-person and virtual office atmosphere and a commitment to person-centered and evidence-based treatments, we are dedicated to helping you address your life's challenges. Contact us now to schedule your first session at 708-248-7039 or online at trueheightstx.com. Book your appointment today and start your journey towards a happier, healthier life. Need more George? Like his pages on Facebook. Friends of George Brassy PAC, Fifth Ward Business Alliance, Chicago Heights Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, and the George Brassy Podcast.